Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman. I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. We are trying to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And we've got a lot of exciting events and programs, one of which is the Inclusive Product Management Certificate Program. That's brand new for current product managers who are good at their craft but want to be even better and realize that inclusion is a path to standard success metrics in product management. So you'll learn about inclusive product management in that certificate program. And we also have the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator for aspiring product managers. We have busy application reviewers deciding our next cohort, and we always have a need for volunteers. So if you want to give back to the next generation of product managers and product managers from historically marginalized communities, Google the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator and become a volunteer. A volunteer is how I met Anisha. Anisha, thank you so much for joining us. Please tell us a little bit about your journey in product management and tell us why you chose or recommended this topic, or maybe I recommended it, but why you agreed to it, of how human-centered design and engineering can help product managers. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. So glad that we finally figured out this clubhouse-like feature. This is my first time, so that's why I had all the trouble. So the question is, what was my PM journey and why I recommended this topic, right? Okay, cool. So I started off as an engineer at Microsoft, and I was on the design systems team there called Fluent. And I realized after a few years that I cared more about defining the problem and talking with users. So I started trying to switch into product. That's actually how I met Julie, who's also on here. And luckily my team needed a product manager for the Mac and mobile offerings. So I switched over. And that's actually around the same time that I joined the human-centered design and engineering master's program at UW because I realized that I needed more training in the foundations of product development and HCD to me looked like it offered that. And yeah, I can go into more of the details later, but that's kind of how I got to product and HCD or human-centered design. So yeah, that's me. All right. Thank you, Anisha, for joining us today. And thanks for giving back through the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. Grateful to have you sharing your valuable time and expertise. And Julie, Can you tell us about your journey in product management? And then to put you on the spot here, if you're okay with it, just a quick, what is it? What is human-centered design and engineering? Like, yeah, what does that even mean? Sure. It's a great topic to cover for this session. So thanks for having me. My name is Julie Cito. I've been a PM for about 13 years, briefly in the hearing aid industry, but most of that time at Microsoft as a PM the whole time. I started out, you know, my background was kind of more technical. I did electrical and computer engineering, focused on a lot of algorithm work. And my first role at Microsoft was as an infrastructure PM, just thinking about backend type things. But I just sort of became more and more interested in user facing features. So I kind of moved into that type of role working on the office mobile applications. I've also 
worked on an office growth team, um, two teams in Azure IoT, building a platform as a service um, and a SaaS as a service for a SaaS product. And then I currently work um, in office on a new app called Loop. And I, you know, when I started my career, I didn't have sort of the language or understanding of human-centered design. I kind of grew into it. But even before I knew what it was, it's something that's near and dear to my heart. I'll kind of share an anecdote. When I was in grad school, I worked on hearing aid test software. And I spent more than two years, you know, a lot of late nights, a lot of hard work on this product. And essentially, I spent two years on the algorithm and two days on the user interface. And despite having sort of proven that the algorithm would help children hear, it never took off because actual clinicians, the audiologists who work in hearing aid clinics could not use the software. It was, it was unusable. It was hard to use. And, you know, obviously it was heartbreaking to have all that work kind of never really take off in the hearing aid industry. So really determined to learn from that. I started learning from designers and PMs did, you know, did great design work on the job. And then I found out about the human centered design and engineering program at UW. So at the time for me, I was working full time, but I signed up to do a certificate. And in 2014, I completed my certificate in human centered design. And I'd like to think that since then, I've had more success at building products that people actually can use. So that's my intro. And then to get to what is human-centered design, maybe I'll start with kind of a brief definition, but I would define it as building things for humans with empathy. Sometimes it's easier to say what something's not. It's not building products just because the tech exists and you kind of want to play with it or find a way to apply it. And it's not building something just because you think people might like it. It's building product making with people at every center of the way. So you know that it's what they want. And then human-centered design is kind of best to think of as like an approach or methodology that you could apply to your work. And generally described in phases and every book you read on it or school program might kind of label them slightly differently. They might have three to five, but the gist of it is the sort of phases are inspiration, ideation, and implementation, or essentially really, really understanding your customer and their problems and pain points and needs, ideating a ton of different possible solutions, prototyping and testing them. And then as you implement, not losing touch with that, knowing your customer base might change or when thing, you know, something is fully functional, users might perceive it differently. So continuing to test and iterate along the way. Thank you, Julie. Appreciate uh, the perspective and having you here. So we're going to dive more into human-centered design and engineering and how it could help product managers succeed. First, Sumeya, I have to ask a question. The way Julie described it, that seems to go by several different names, or there's other ways that people might do human-centered design and engineering without realizing it. Can you talk a little bit about what human-centered design and engineering relates to and other concepts people might be familiar with or that you've utilized? Yeah, absolutely. I love, Jeff, how, you know, we've gotten to a point where we almost can anticipate some of these questions. Because when I was thinking about this topic today, I was thinking, it got me to thinking about user-centered design and design thinking, all other concepts or buzzwords that relate to this. And I was curious about their history. Do they overlap or do they mean exactly the same thing? And based on my, you know, 30 minutes of research, I definitely found that they might have different definitions by their founders or by the people who use those phrases or started using them. However, what they have in common is this mindset of putting the user or users or stakeholders or the people who we are trying to understand the problem for and develop a solution for, understanding them, 
testing with them, validating with them, and then releasing, you know, giving them the solution. So I think we might hear the same concept come up in many different phrases, UCD, HCD, HCI, DT, design thinking, but it's all uh, the underlying concern here is exactly what Julie said. And so let me turn that to Julie and Anisha. Have you thought about just the standard design thinking, like as you have colleagues at Microsoft and Google, even though you're speaking for your own opinions, just to make that very clear for everybody, have you come across other ways of describing the same or similar approaches? And have you noticed any differences between some of these common approaches that Sumeya just spit out the acronym salad for us? Have you found any differences from what you learned in HCDE from how other people are talking about some of the similar concepts? The most common terms I hear for it is like HCDE, human-centered design, and design thinking. Another common thing I've encountered is people will just sort of take parts of it. So using a jobs-to-be-done framework, which is essentially a way of when you're trying to figure out what to build, thinking about what jobs would a user hire this product to do. That's kind of a piece of HCDE, and I kind of see that pulled out in practice sort of in isolation, which isn't bad. It's like, it's a great part of it. Or rapid prototyping is kind of a key part of HCDE. For me, the biggest thing I've noticed, or the way I think about it, is that HCDE is sort of the most complete methodology where it sort of would include like implementation where design thinking really, really similar, but it often kind of ends at, you know, you prototyped a solution and tested it and you got great feet, you know, you're iterated and then you're done. And I think of like, when I think of product managers specifically, or the term human-centered design and engineering, it's the last phase of you're actually going to, you know, build it to shipping quality and moderate it once it ships and continue to iterate and ideate. And then you can use tools that come later in the game, like actual user telemetry and customer feedback and continue to improve. And generally design thinking kind of like as a practice ends before that, but can be applied throughout the whole product life cycle. Yeah. And one perspective that has been kind of drilled into us in recent HCD classes is that design thinking, while it's super useful, it can also reinforce our biases as the people who are defining the problems. And there's, if you like, even now I was just searching just to refresh myself of the criticisms of design thinking, but essentially it boils down to it reinforces like the bias of those in power. And so the remedy for that, that we learned in classes to hire more like local designers. For example, if you're designing for a global market or have internationalization in your futures, it's to like hire folks who are from the cultures that you're building for rather than go, you know, entirely by the design thinking Bible, which kind of says to define it yourself and like try and find out all of the use cases on your own. But that's, yeah, that's one perspective I wanted to share because I think HCDE, for me, has been super helpful in like introducing to me all these alternate perspectives and not just the methodologies themselves. All right. So speaking of biases, what are some tips that human-centered design and engineering has beyond hiring people who have different biases than your own? Are there any tips that help that somebody could take away today? Uh, any like five-minute tips or two-minute tips that's like, hey, if I adopt that, I could very quickly overcome some of my biases. I know it's a, a longer process and it's more requires more sustained practice, but is there any like bite-sized takeaways that we could share with the audience about overcoming the biases in, in this process? 
I think one of the first ones that I'll share to start us off is going beyond the obvious personas. Uh, so early in the project, you know, when you find that you have landed on an important hypothesis around the problem, the next step, or maybe even before that, is to define possible personas that we want to solve the problems for. And, you know, when you're thinking about those personas, be always vigilant about what assumptions are going into defining those personas and why you're eliminating other personas. And it's okay if you're eliminating because that's what prioritization means. But just be very conscious and very, you know, very clear about what that criteria was and where you plan to include those personas again, if you are in the future. That resonates with, I was talking to a product manager at a prestigious company who prefers not to be named, but now, at least in their team, their product requirement documents has a section about who have you accidentally or intentionally or unintentionally excluded from this product and how and when will you adapt the product to bring them into the fold, to have it work for them. So bringing some of those biases that we just kind of, if we don't think about, we accidentally exclude people based off of age, race, gender, geographic location, ability, and so on. So making it explicit can help you correct for it. Julia or Anisha, do you have any other bite-sized tips for people overcoming biases as product managers? I can give a tip. I think it's combine all sorts of different research methodologies if you're working on a feature. For example, I was working on an onboarding experience and I got a lot of great insight by surveying a very, very broad you know, range of users. And from that, I could kind of assess like their comfort level with, I was looking into when users are ready to collaborate with others when they're using a new product and I could assess their comfort level. And then I was able to do later sort of some rapid usability testing with a group of people, you know, that are sort of just always around or in the building to, you know, provide usability feedback, but that comes with extreme bias because those folks are very tech savvy and their comfort level with trying new things is not at all representative of the population, but I could sort of isolate what I was trying to research and use different methodologies. So my tip would be, you know, you can't answer everything with one study and you can't sort of include everything with one, you know, short round of research. So be really iterative and use different methods in different participant groups. Yeah, I want to pass on that. And I think there there are a few other, I guess, steps that we've become, that have become kind of a standard in product development, like making sure that RTL works so that your products are usable in Arabic and Hebrew. But then I'm actually taking a really cool class right now in our master's program called International UX. And there have been some tips around designing for other cultures that you may not like have enough information about. So the tip that Julie said is, is really important and like really helpful for that. I think another one is to design sort of culturally neutral experiences. So if you are creating iconography, for example, making sure that it's as understandable to someone in Africa as it is to someone in North America. And so that also would require like a wider range of testing. And yeah, I think there are a few other things that if you start to read like the literature in globalization, they become just useful to have off the top of your head. Like in Japan, the website design is like a lot more text intense, but that's how they prefer it. The users there look for more information, whereas 
in North America, we look for more images. And so those are also a few things, just tips off the top of my head. Thank you. So now going into human-centered design and engineering, my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Anisha and Julie, I think you are already in tech, already doing some great things associated with building products for some fantastic companies. And yet during that time, you chose to learn about human-centered design and engineering. This kind of relates to why somebody should continue listening to this, but why did you find it so important to learn human-centered design and engineering? What was your human-centered need that you were trying to solve? If that's not too personal of a question, but like, why? Why this topic? So for me, I became a PM for design systems, and I was an engineer before that. And the primary users of design systems are actually makers. We have, we consider the end users or as also users, but that's like a layer removed. First and foremost are the design system user is a builder with a design or engineering skill set or somewhere in between design and engineering, like a hybrid skill set. And so I realized I had a pretty good handle on the developer pain points for my product, but not so much on the designer pain points. And I found myself when I was in Fluent kind of not fully following all of the design use cases or like uh, critical user journeys. And so that's why I found it important for me to like understand what it is to be a designer building with a design system. And once I started the HCDU program, because this grad program makes you do a lot of Figma projects, like all our homework and projects are all in Figma. And at the end of every quarter, you kind of build a, a big app or some sort of experience. So that helped me build empathy for the designer because I kind of had to be the designer. And I think that helped develop a lot of empathy for designers and like it made it easier to come up with the CUJs and like the pain points for my product. Yeah. The way I, you know, became interested in in studying HCDE was my main motivation was that, you know, that grad school experience where I built something that really no one could use. And I worked on an early product at Microsoft where I kind of, I'm of the opinion that not many people wanted it. And it's really heartbreaking when you put a lot of work into a product and people don't want it or can't use it. So I just wanted to kind of gain gain the skills to not do that. I also, for me, when I decided to do continuing education in HCDE, I was pretty early in my career and I just wanted more confidence. Like in the PM role, I feel like you have a lot of autonomy and need to make a lot of decisions. And my background was really purely technical. And I, you know, of course you learn on the job, but I was sort of impatient. You know, you can only gain experience so fast and I wanted, you know, to be good at my job and keep accepting bigger opportunities. So I, I just sort of wanted education for, you know, for the confidence and the decisions I needed to make on a day-to-day -day basis in my job. And then lastly, just passion. It sounded so fascinating. This like, you know, I know this is like a very general statement, but I care about people before I was working in software. I just worked at a lot of jobs that were, you know, related to people and meeting their needs. And I also am attracted into sort of multidisciplinary topics because I find it so fascinating. And in HCDE, it's really sort of combining design, but also psychology and sociology. And I thought it was such a, an interesting field. Thank you so much. We're going to go to examples. I think people are hungry. They're now realizing, okay, I don't want to launch products that nobody wants. And so there's something to learn here. Let's do two things just to, so everybody kind of knows where the conversation is going. First, I want kind of examples of how you've used HCDE in your jobs. And Sumeya, you could kind of reframe that question how you see fit, but I'd love to hear from each of you there. And then I'd also love just like one bite-sized 
something somebody could do tomorrow so that obviously there's no replacement for full set of coursework, but some takeaways that somebody could apply tomorrow. And then after that, we're going to do, Red is going to do audience questions. So everybody here listening, start thinking about what you want to ask, or if you're an expert in this area, uh, what you want to share, because we'd love to hear from you. So I'm first going through an example of how you've used HCDE in your job. We'll start with Julie, then Anisha, and then Sumeya. Sure. Sounds good. Uh, maybe a common example is your manager asks you, like he assigns you a project and says, you know, can you build X? And it's unclear why users might want it. So I've used HCDE to really uncover the why. There's been, you know, my experience is at Microsoft, which is a big company, and we have dedicated user research teams, but it doesn't mean that they can be involved in every project. So I would sort of take it upon myself to, you know, do user research. I'm with a certificate I did, I'm comfortable designing simple studies and moderating. So I would, you know, and recruiting. So I would just dig in and do, you know, do a lot more research. And then I would sometimes push back on the ask using data and saying, you know, you asked me to build X, but I, I really don't think that's what users want. I think we should, you know, investigate Y instead. Or, you know, if you're, you are going to move forward and it seems like a great idea to build, you have that rich understanding of customer needs to do a really good job at it. And then actually I'll do kind of one more related one. I think this is one I encounter most commonly as a PM, you're often needing to scope a feature. And I really, really like using jobs to be done because a challenge that PMs have is when you have say a time constraint for a release or something like that, you can scope down a version and get to a point where the MVP that you have left doesn't actually solve the jobs that the user would hire the product to do. So creating a jobs to be done framework and then checking as you scope your feature that you still actually solve that job is something I do all the time. And it's probably my biggest tip for people to take away if they want to do something tomorrow. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me, Julie. I have actually had moments where like Wednesday night, I'll get a template in class for my UX research professor, you know, to use in our, our quarter project, but then show up to a meeting the next day and at work and realize like, oh, I actually need to use this template to propose a research plan for work. Cause like you said, there, even at large companies, there are teams of UX researchers, but you don't always get one dedicated for your product. So that's been super helpful for me just to have confidence and like practice running a research study or even, you know, how to conduct interviews. But to get to a more specific example, my first project at Microsoft was actually to make this design to code Figma plugin for makers to build tokens in a centralized way and deliver them to all platforms like iOS, web or Android, etc. And the way we define problems in HCDE came through super clutch for me because when we're makers who are building tools for other makers, we have biases that tend to take priority in what we build. But I was able to take a step back and use my training to actually interview real users of the plugin and define use cases and CUJs that are more relevant to them and not just me and my team as the design system maintainers. So yeah, that's that's kind of my example there. I'm going to focus just uh, for a second on uh, enterprise situations that come up. And a lot of times they start with our sales team, where the sales team comes in and said, hey, we have this account and we heard this feedback. This is obviously a mature product or a product that has validation already. And oh, by the way, for this specific client, we need 
to solve this problem for them, or we need this feature. A lot of time it actually comes in as we need this exact feature. And so for the product team, then the question is, what is behind the need for this feature? What problem are we solving? It's easy to just jump in sometimes and start building right away. But asking that question, going back to that user that we got the feedback from directly and talking to them and trying to understand what they're trying to solve for, but then also talking to other users beyond them and trying to see how they're solving for that problem to understand whether there is viability or feasibility as well. Obviously, there is desirability from one customer, but for it to make sense in an enterprise product, we need a little more validation or input from other people as well. So that's one that comes up reasonably often with mature enterprise products. In terms of tips, I think in the last show, we talked about discovery and some of the activities you do in discovery and the types of questions you ask, you know, the open-ended one or the generative ones. So those tips apply here. We were talking mostly about the, you know, the beginning side of this equation. Those same skills come up again in the validation. So once you have something that you can get validation of, whether it's a prototype or an actual feature, you know, think through what, how are you collecting metrics? How are you validating that this is actually what the humans, the users, the API, you know, actually need? And in this case, the machine is also a persona that we care about. So we're going to get to Red, who's going to do audience questions. So if you want to talk and have your question heard or have your perspective heard, get ready to raise your hand. First, a quick question. As I'm thinking through hearing all that you're saying, and we've got human-centered design and engineering, which seems to be focused human, it's centered on the human, is it sometimes a disadvantage? Or could it be a disadvantage because does it encourage you to lose sight of the business and what the organization needs to continue to add value to the users? So Julia or Anisha or both, is there a tension or is that taken into account in HCDE? I think that's a really, really great question. And I think that often in the short term, it can feel like attention. I'm trying, let me try to think of a concrete example. I don't know you're working on product onboarding and kind of you as the business want to make sure users understand like all the value of the product and sort of the user just doesn't care at that moment in time. Like their need is not to read a really long paragraph when they just want to like click on a notification and follow up on what a colleague was trying to talk to them about. So those can kind of feel at odds, but I think it's natural. And most people, most listeners should expect to encounter that tension, like when they're working as a PM. And I think the critical thing is to step back and look longer term, because I would say that always, or if not the vast majority of the time in the longer term, human-centered design and business objectives are one and the same. They kind of match each other. Like you applying human-centered design will help you meet your business objectives, whether it's kind of more revenue-driven or like usage, like MAO-driven, you know, human-centered design, I think is the way to build that, you know, beloved product that will eventually help you achieve that. And then, yeah, in the short term, you have to just sort of think through your steps to get to the long-term goals and make trade-offs. And when you do build something that maybe isn't exactly what the user would want in that moment. It doesn't mean that you've sort of failed at applying human-centered design. Like I think if you follow the steps and know that there is, you know, there's a tension, there's a short-term trade-off you're making, that's okay. Anisha, anything to add before we head to audience questions? No, I think that was a great description from Julie. 
All right. Thank you for satisfying that curiosity. Red, speaking of curiosity, I'm curious. Are you red E to do your uh, thing? Jeff, 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 Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I am so not ready for that punny humor of yours right now. I you, just uh, I need something more. I need a little more fire, a little more human red centered design humor. Out there. You're going to miss it one day, Red. One day. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Uh, well, one thing that's super interesting is that as we've been talking through this, I've been getting some private messages from folks, not so much questions, but just more so looking for guidance. I've become Google, Jeff, where people are asking about the difference between the human and user-centered design themes. So I guess uh, if red is synonymous with Google, then the internet is, is done for. But with that in mind, I'm inviting all of those to raise their hands, ask questions. This is an opportunity where rather than Googling, you can actually work with people that work at Google. Oh my goodness, how amazing would that be to get your answer without having to type it? So please, this is a great way for you to either come on stage by raising your hand if you're here live on the show. If you're not somebody who likes to come on stage, you can message me right within the LinkedIn platform. Or if you would like the Slack group. Last week, Jeff, I got so many questions on Slack from people that were just a little shy to get on stage, but they really wanted to get their question answered. So I'm going to put it out there to the world that is currently listening live. If you have a question about human-centered design and in general, everything what we discussed today, as close as you can be on topic, please ask away. But while we wait, Jeff, I don't have any immediate ones to rock and roll at the moment. So I'm going to look through. I'm going to hand back to you to either selflessly talk about what you're doing or bring up a power question to cause some controversy. Give me a moment. I'm going to search for Q&A. There's somebody who raised their hand, so we'll get them up on stage. And I, I do want to say, <laughs> you crack me up, man. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, the red's becoming synonymous with Google. It's becoming synonymous with Jerry Seinfeld or uh, <laughs> whoever else makes me laugh. I'll take it. I'll, if that's what makes you laugh, I, I know it's on your bucket list. Meet Jerry. So with that in mind, uh, we have someone who's donning my favorite color as a t-shirt. Chris, I don't mention last names for just in general purposes to protect you. Chris, what is your question as someone who's a program manager too? How can we help you today? Hi, I'd like to uh, build upon something uh, some you touched on earlier. What are some of the differences in applying HCD in an enterprise or B2B versus consumer uh, B2C product or context? Ooh, great question. I think uh, for this one, if it's okay, we have some representation for folks that have worked with in B2B as well as B2C and enterprise and not. Anisha, I'd love to kick it to you to start just uh, keeping themes with Google here. Would you have an answer to this one as far as how HCD is different for you as it might be for someone that is not a Google? Yeah, for sure. So this is a really relevant question for me. I've worked on design systems like across the three companies in my career, so at Microsoft, at Salesforce, and at Google. But even though they're all this, you know, similar products, at Salesforce, we actually had more of a focus on, we actually differentiated B2B versus B2C. And then there was also B2B2C because Salesforce sells website builders as part of their product offering. So our design system had to do all three. At Google, we haven't really, like, I don't think we think of it as strictly those two categories, but I personally think of my users for 
design systems as the first layer being builders or makers with a hybrid skill set. And so when I'm creating user journeys, I think about like the designer experience and the developer experience or the experience of someone who has that hybrid skill set. And then I also think about the second layer of users, which is the end user of the products that use our design system. So in terms of like how HCD is different for those two layers, it's like how we apply HCD is definitely not different. We still create personas for both layers. But I think the, you know, going back to like the globalization example, that applies more for the end users if in terms of like more text heavy or right to left versus creating CUJs for like the makers or like the developers and designers, the pain points become less UI focused and more like API focused or, you know, what what is the experience of using this API versus something else? So I don't know if that clarifies the question, but that's kind of how I think about it. And yeah, I'll let someone else offer their perspective. Awesome. So I just, Julie, please, yes, jump on in. I was just going to plus one what Anisha said to me in terms of sort of applying HCDE. It's it's all the same. It shouldn't, you know, that techniques are meant to be durable and it shouldn't change based on like sort of the audience or type of product you're building. But in my experience, it is way harder to apply effectively in like a B2B or B2B to C just because there are so many more sort of unique personas. And in my opinion, that's why I think that in the past, there's just been a lot of enterprise software that's kind of bad because there were just personas that weren't considered. So to give a concrete example, when I worked in Azure IoT, there on the product I was working on, we would kind of think about a decision maker, like someone like a CTO who might care a lot about cost, and then a solution architect who might, you know, who would be maybe an IT and set up an IoT solution. And then someone in OT, like a field technician who would go and actually kind of monitor dashboards of IoT devices. And then there's a device manufacturer who needs to, you know, make devices that communicate with the cloud. And they were all super different. So it was a lot of upfront work to apply HCDE. And I was leading a design team at the time and I had to convince our leadership team kind of on the value of taking all of that time to thoroughly explore personas and do tons of customer interviews because there was such a breadth that we needed to do. So I think you you could encounter, you know, challenges and making sure you have enough time and resources to apply early well. And like I said, in a B2B or B2B to C, but all the techniques would still remain the same. I'd like to point out and highlight that I, I love the alignment as well as additive nature of what you said and what Anisha, you originally pointed out. But Chris, I think just to create some dichotomy, right? So, you know, when you talk about B2B and B2C structures, you, your question involved just those two, but you also added a later of enterprise versus not. And so, so far, uh, and I want to also point out when we used acronyms on the show, I'd like to explain if we say CUJ, that is customer user journey. And if you're just joining HCZ, that is a uh, human-centered design. And the question is about the idea of whether or not B2B in B2C, large or small, you'll find one human-centered design over maybe something like a user-centered design. And as Julie and Anisha pointed out, there's so many unique differences with B2B, especially Chris, one thing just from a personal perspective, having worked at B2B SaaS, it's a, a very quantitative and analytical process to growing and scaling a business and so many stakeholders when you're selling enterprise software that it's very difficult to be what human-centered design asks you to be, which is more 
qualitative. And that's just a very difficult thing to do and uh, part of why we're having this conversation. Samia, is there anything you'd like to add to kind of create another dimension of where HCD might not make sense from a, a company's perspective? And then uh, if we see another hand, we'll call you up, but we're just going to finish up this question. So to you, Samia. Well, you know, if we all agree that the mindset of focusing on what the user or users or people were so... Actually, let's forget about users for a second because that can imply humans or humans only. If we just, you know, focus on the mindset of we need to understand the problem, we need to understand who faces that problem and the possible solutions we can create, then it allows you to use whatever approach you need to based on the problem you have. Yes, definitely, depending on the culture you're in, the company you're in, you might have more success with one versus the other. But, you know, I can see how, for example, in a B2C company where you have to think about a billion users, being a little more religious in following HCDE is probably the way to go because it has within its core that you have to think in systems. And when you're thinking about a billion users from day one, you know, you have to have something systematic in place that you're thinking through and developing, identifying problems with and also developing solutions through. So, you know, I hesitate to answer this question very definitively because as I am trying to break it down into large buckets of where I see one approach work and it doesn't, I can also think about the exceptions. And this is another case of where it depends comes up. Oh, of course. When it comes to product managers, alignment, it depends, lack of fighting on stage. We just, uh, there's a reason I push for it. It's because I, I just love the non sequitur. But that being said, Chris, do you feel like you got the answer you needed as it related to your decision around where and when to apply HCD? Yes, thank you. Of course, and thank you for choosing a red shirt to sport on LinkedIn. <laughs> so we have another question, another hand raiser here. Hopefully I say your name correctly, Manapa. You are representing, a again, another large organization. So, wow, the theme here is really B2B and enterprise as well as B2C enterprise. Uh, what is your question and how can we help you today? Yeah, thanks, Rhett, and uh, thanks for the great discussion. Yeah, as I said, I'm coming from the enterprise side of things. The question I have is, what are some of the things we should consider geographically and culturally while we design the product in enterprise space? Could you provide some context where this question is coming from, a little color? Sure. Mm -hmm. So just to give you some background about myself, I started as a plastics product designer 20 years ago and then uh, moved or followed the trend and now I'm part of the uh, digital uh, product management specifically supporting pricing related products, right? So when I design a product for a particular user in the US versus design the same digital product for a user in, let's say, Singapore or somewhere in Europe, uh, is there any special consideration we should look into from the geography or the background of the user? Ooh, oh my gosh, yes, this is a great question. So, uh, you know, for this one, I, Julie, I'd like to start with you, as I started with Anisha the last time, and we did talk about the idea of globalization as you think about one country versus another, culturally versus another. I think the gold standard is as much as possible kind of 
focus on one region at a time and design specifically for that region. However, I have to say that probably only once in the last 12 years have I actually been able to do that because it's extremely expensive. But if you look at companies that have, or like products, smaller products that have been highly successful, they've also often been really sort of maybe more so for consumer products, but really specialized for one market. If you can't follow that gold standard, which I'll try to provide kind of more practical advice, I'll often see people choose a couple different regions in the world that generally have different workplace cultures and make sure to do kind of early user research about sort of the jobs to be done and problems, as well as sort of later like prototype validation across, you know, with customers from a wide range of geographies. And then if you have disparate feedback, you have to kind of decide, you know, what are you resourced to do if it's something like a web page and, you know, making it more text dense um, in the Japanese version, like that's very doable. If it's like a fundamental difference in, you know, how users might use a product, it really kind of becomes a collaborative decision. And it's sort of, you know, you need to bring your HCD perspective, but definitely collaborate with stakeholders and business and marketing and things like that to make the right call. If you find yourself where you you feel like you can have sort of product market fit in a bunch of different regions, and it kind of is getting down to the details, then I would kind of encourage you to make sure to think, like if you validated your use cases, kind of think like localization and translation and make sure that's done, you know, well and wherever possible, build on machine translation or improve it with like native speakers testing or helping you translate. Check compliance laws because, you know, often products will have pieces that aren't localized and that is actually not legal in all countries. So you definitely want to check that. And then something that we should really be very considerate early on in our design is RTL or right to left languages, for example, like Arabic speakers, like there's people instead of reading left to right as an English speaker would, there's languages that read right to left. And you could imagine that has implications across the UI. If you directly translate, things can be scrambled or and out of order. So you, from sort of a visual layout design um, of that piece of software, you have to really sort of test and plan if you're going to support RTL languages. Excellent. Thanks, Julie. This is really helpful. May I ask a follow-up question, if that is okay? If there are no other hands. Yes, I appreciate you you qualifying. And if anyone wants to answer your first question after this, that is okay, too. So, Minapa, please, what what is the follow-up? The follow-up is, do you have any recommendation on a good resource or boot camp we can look into specifically on human computer interface or human-centered design on this area? I'd love to pass it to Anisha. Yeah, I can actually answer probably both of your questions with this. So I recently learned about this cultural model called Hofstede's Cultural Dimensions. And so if you Google that, you'll see this person's methodology for how to globalize your product. And so that he talks about power distance, individuality, and a bunch of other categories. And he actually has a website. I think it's called like hi.org. Hofstede-insights.com, or if you just Google Hofstede, it'll probably come up. And he ranks every single country on these, like, I think six categories. And we've been using that a lot in our HCD, like, projects and product development. So considering, like, how big a power imbalance is in a country or how indulgent or restrained a society is. And then Another concept that has been helpful is a concept called reverse innovation, which is essentially designing for an emerging market and then kind of going back and applying it to a developed market. So designing a product for an emerging market like 
India or another emerging market and then in, in reverse applying that to in something like North America. So that's another way to go about globalization. So those are two, I guess, resources and concepts that I would recommend. Excellent. This is really helpful. Thanks, Anisha. And thank you, team. Very great discussion here. Awesome. And while your photo is potentially black and white, I'm just going to assume that shirt is also red. So you know what, Jeff? It's just all around a very flattering day for me. And you know, with the holidays coming up, there is a lot of red out there right now. So I'm just going to turn down my red and hand the mic back to you. And Manapa, thank you for asking your question. Thank you so much. Yeah. Red, so you are Red D for concluding thoughts? Is that what I'm hearing? Well, actually, I mean, usually concluding thoughts takes a couple minutes. I thought maybe you can throw on your red boxing gloves and stir up a little potential controversy. I mean, we're talking <laughs> about human-centered design and empathy. There's got to be some tears in that. I know, but I don't think that's going to happen. But we do have another person who had a question. So rather than concluding thoughts, I do want to make sure that we engage as many people who want to be engaged. So, Red, you're back on duty. Sorry. <laughs> of course. No worries. Well, I can't see a profile pic, but Mikolai, you've got exactly one minute to ask whatever question you need to ask that we can attend. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Sorry, I, I, I popped in late. And I'm actually an aspiring product manager. I'm a fellow in the Fall 22 Accelerator. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a product manager. Yes. Woo. And I'm on the journey for my first product role. Most of my experience has been in program management. Um, and I have a true passion for human-centered design, universal design. And I'm kind of wondering, not so much a question, but maybe I'm hoping somebody can talk a little bit about maybe when you receive pushback with trying to keep features human-centered or universal, maybe maybe explaining why these designs are important. Human-centered designer and universal design are important to have in um, different features. And, I'm, and I apologize if you guys already spoke about that, but thanks. No, no, no. It's okay. You know what? If you're going to go into an organization hot to trot saying, I want to make change and I don't see any examples of you doing this HCD here. Julie, you came off mute first, unless you don't want it. Would love to hear if you've ever had a horror story of someone saying no to what you've recommended. As, far, as it relates to design? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it happens all the time to the point where I don't have one horror story that stands out. So I think it's, you know, the way that I have two tips on sort of combating that. One is I do believe that everyone contributing to product at their heart really wants to make it the best thing they can be. So you have to get curious and kind of wonder instead of kind of assuming like, oh, they're against HCDE, they probably have a piece of information that I don't have or they have a priority that's sort of not top of my list. And most of often it's time or available people to actually, you know, code it and build it and stuff like that. So kind of getting curious as to why someone is pushing back, I think is sort of the key to working together and, you know, working through sort of competing priorities. And then I think another one is that I think there's people out there who are just wary of a lot of like buzzwords and terms and methodologies without impact. So sometimes I actually, I don't sort of state like I'm going to do this HCDE thing right now. I just do the work and have faith that it'll, you know, lead to a great product. And then, you know, when people sort of see the result or see the metrics or see the usage, then they start asking, you know, how did you make this or why? And, and to me, that's sort of when I talk a lot more about HCD. So it's sort of like do and ask for forgiveness rather than sort of ask permission to apply HCD. Knowing that we only have a few more minutes left and I want to get to concluding thoughts with Jeff and the crew, we got a thumbs up saying, Julie, your answer met the expectations, but uh, warning to all, this is 
Julie's personal recommendation, not a recommendation for what they might be doing at their company. But Julie, I will say in general, I err on the side of what you just said. Let's just see what happens as long as you truly believe it is the best possible thing for the customer. And you're not like slipping your team's deadlines, right? You have to consider the needs of others and your commitments. So apply with a grain of salt. Now that was a disclaimer if I've ever heard one, but a good one, the best kind. I do have one follow-up question. So our guest, uh, Inclusive Product Management Accelerator Fellow, thank you for joining us on stage here today. Use the term universal design. And I'm curious, how much does human-centered design kind of advocate for universal design? My understanding, well, actually, I'll let you under, share your understanding of universal design and, and whether that is what human-centered design is striving for or whether it's striving for something more nuanced where it's designed for different people, uh, different humans. Uh, Anisha or Julie or Samea, any thoughts on that? From my training, I think the nuance is more important for human-centered design and engineering. But, you know, kind of how we've talked about applying this to product management, it's not, we don't have like infinite resources. We are often working with time and resource constraints. So I think it's a balance that we have to strike when we're applying HCDE in designing universally. But I think like the principles help us strike that balance. Julie, anything to add before we get to concluding thoughts on the universal design versus if human-centered design is like they work in different directions or if they work together? Universal design to design for everybody. I think they work together and I think Anisha covered it really well. Awesome. All right. Concluding thoughts. Sumaya, I know you might have to go the soonest. So concluding thoughts and one resource that some that you would recommend. Absolutely. This was a very good discussion. I want to highlight that your design partner, whether it's a UX designer or a researcher, should be, you know, someone who is advocating for this just as much as you. And if they are not, then I encourage you to focus on helping them get that game up. Because if they're going to advocate for the user or user experience, they should consider a lot of what we talked about. And I used to take that for granted. I worked with amazing designers. It turns out most of them were unicorns <laughs> because they had that UI, UX, and research experience well-rounded, and they brought that to the fore. But I realize not everyone has that. So number one, leverage your design partners as much as possible. They can be very helpful in this. And then the second point is around using existing language in your organization. So for example, you look at Amazon. Amazon talks about you know being obsessed about the user or the customer they don't use the word hcd or the term hcd but le so leverage what you have in your own culture to make hcd work for you because hcd comes with some tools and some principles but it's not a you know black and white kind of situation you probably have already some things on the ground that you can some threads you can pull, pull on and use that language that ubiquitous language that's common to your organization and then adopt some of these tools we talked about today and then last thing around around tools so IDEO talks about, you know, these principles around design thinking and human-centered design. Stanford University also on their website, they talk about this stuff. Designkit.org. I rely mostly on basically my design partners, honestly, to learn a lot of these concepts. So ask your design friends, where do they go to learn about this? And you'll find probably really useful places too. Thank you, Samaya. Julie? 
For my closing remark, I would say, you know, when you're working in product, don't just think about applying HCDE to the features that you're working on. Think about bringing it as a culture to the team. I've done a lot of this because I've been in a management role over the past couple of years, but really anyone on the team can influence culture. So think about things like you could create spec templates or design brief templates that really focus on the why and the customer problems. You could create a program to make sure everyone on your team has customers they talk to regularly, including the engineers in that program, um, and making sure there's sort of a pool of customers that anyone could go to for rapid feedback. I think another kind of piece is building a culture on your team where it's okay to sort of quote unquote fail because it's not really failing, but like, it's okay to build something and not build as in fully coded ship. It's okay to design something, you know, test it and have users not like it. And that's something that I would personally encourage my team to still share in, we call it design readout, but in a presentation, you know, we shouldn't always just show these perfect designs. We should show the journeys along the way and celebrate, you know, what we learned and everyone can on the team can learn from why customers didn't like it. And I think it's important to make sure that multiple people on your team feel empowered and trained to conduct basic user research. User research is, you know, a real depth skill to dive into, you know, really challenging customer problems. But in terms of something like basic usability testing, you should be able to train up yourself and folks on your team and do that. So kind of on that, I'll give you my my resource tip. And it's the Nielsen Norman Group website. And they have an article, Why You Only Need to Test with Five Users. Like keep that in your product toolbox because chances are at some point you will prototype something and you'll do some like rapid iteration and feedback sessions and you might just, you know, get input from five or six people. And then, you know, working in software, there'll be highly analytical folks who sort of say like, I don't know, can that really be valid? You only talk to five users. Is there any value in that data? And the answer is a resounding yes. You can discover so many usability challenges with just five users. And this article shows it very clearly and methodically for the doubters. So keep that in your toolbox to show if you encounter that. Thank you. And then we're going to get to Anish in just a second. But Red, I know you had to go. Do you have a concluding thought? I would say as much as I'd love to talk about product management, this is one of those rare moments where I think human-centered design can actually carry really well across other departments. And while we kind of touched on it, If you're listening to the show and you're not in product management, I would find a way to either contribute to the goal of the human-centered design process that is set up by your teams and and product, or given the economy right now, Jeff, and everything that's going on, empathy is probably one of the most important things that needs to be carried into your own process. So this is just more of a reminder for every role, not just product, how important it is we are here to be thoughtful and qualitative with our approach as a business rather than trying to push for that scale that put us in the really here in the first place. So uh, those are my thoughts and my thoughts alone. And hopefully anyone who wants to chat more about it can reach out to me directly. Back to you, Jeff. All right, Red. Love the energy. Love emphasis on empathy. And Anisha, speaking of empathy, you've been so empathetic meeting with fellows in the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, a valuable volunteer. I want to hype that program and your your generosity with your time. And now also give you a floor for concluding thoughts and a resource. Thanks, Jeff. It's been a true pleasure. I will continue to volunteer at the program and I hope all of you do too. So my closing remark, I think I want to focus it on kind of reiterating what human-centered design engineering means to me. So for me, HCDE is coming at product development from a systems perspective and really critically engaging with technology in a way that prioritizes equity and empathy as we construct the future. So on that note, my resource is actually 
pointing y'all to one of my favorite professors in the HCDU department, which is Dr. Suchata Goshal. So if you Google her name, Suchata Goshal and critical technology, a lot of resources will come up. Probably the video is the most you know fun to, fun to consume. Just I highly recommend that one because I think it changed how I approach and how I prioritize equity and empathy in product management. So yeah, that's me. All right. Thank you so much, Anisha. Thank you, Julie. I appreciate you sharing some expertise on how HCDE, human-centered design and engineering, can be helpful to product managers. All right. So thank you all for listening. We'll be here next week. We're going back to discovery. And as Samaya said, discovery is closely tied to human-centered design and engineering as you get out and empathize and figure out what your uh, users and, and your customers need. So that is all for today's show. And we'll see you next week.